Golazo. So now, am I also right in assuming that everybody here has, here in Phuket, that all of you here uh, have a copy of Natural Liberation? Everybody does. Oh, that's good. Um, it'll be really, from, from today on, this is our textbook, so to speak. And what we have here in the text is not only the, the teachings of Padmasambhava, but really a very, very clear and often, well, just, just a, a very clear and a very helpful commentary, oral commentary from Gyatru Rinpoche. And so um, I really strongly encourage you, you know, to get a copy and speaking to the people listening by podcast, if you're, really, if you're just kind of casually dropping in once in a while, no problem. But if you'd really like to be following these teachings, then I'd strongly encourage you also to get hard copies and then you can always be referring to the, the core teachings, the root text, as well as the commentary as we move through these three bardos. So I think it will be a very, very helpful support for your practice. And so there's that. Hola, so. So we, I think, as you know, we have finished the, um, the presentation of the first of the six bardos, the bardo of living in the Vajra essence. Finished that this morning. Uh, but you'll notice that he didn't really go into any of the particular practices for the, the bardo of living, but it becomes very clear elsewhere, as in this text, that the core practices to be followed within this bardo, in other words, take this bardo, this bardo of living, here we are, uh, as human beings, and use this as a launching pad for achieving enlightenment, right? Well, the two core practices that are discussed, extremely obviously here, and it's not a matter of interpretation, they are shamatha and vipassana, okay? So there's the, there's the backbone for all of the other meditations, through, the, through all of the other bardos. The backbone is here. You start here, because clearly he's, he's writing this for people who are alive. You know, that's where you're starting out. And then in the course of time, you'll be dreaming. In the course of time, then you may go deeper into meditation. And that brings us to the tekchu, or the cutting through to pristine awareness, and then beyond that into the other three bardos. And so there's the general framework. I think with, I'll, I'll give a little bit more of a context, not a whole lot, but uh, we will not cover much of the text. I'm going to do something I've not had the opportunity or made the opportunity to do in the past. I've taught this material many, many times since Gyatrodhambhaji taught it to me about 20 years ago. Taught it to me, that is, I was his interpreter teaching to about 50 people. And just a tiny bit of context. We'll go to the practice very shortly. But um, this was, again, 20 years ago, about 19... 84, 24, oh my goodness. No, yeah, no, 1994, yeah, 20 years, not 30. Uh, about 1994 or so, then he was teaching this in, uh, in San Francisco at a center there called Oregon Den, which has since then moved to the east side of the bay, to Alameda. Uh, there were roughly 50 people or so attending on a very regular basis. He taught it very systematically from start to finish, and I had the opportunity to, to interpret for him for the entire teaching, and then, as so often happens for me, I got so inspired, I asked him, would you like me to translate the text? And he said, yeah, go for it. And then, well, how about your teaching? Yeah, go for it. And so then we have the book. Um, but what was really quite um, exceptional in terms of this particular teaching was, Gyatra this is 1994, he had been teaching in the West for more than 20 years by that time. And years before, had been appointed uh, as the representative for North America uh, by Dujun Rinpoche, the head of the entire Nyingma tradition. And I just recently learned, uh, for somebody who saw it himself, uh, exactly when that occurred. Uh, Dujun Rinpoche, uh, he, he may have done it more formally, he probably did, but symbolically, many years ago, something like 40 years ago, 
Dujan Rinpoche came to the United States, was giving teachings. Gautra Rinpoche, being a very close disciple, was with him in the entourage. And then Dujan Rinpoche is about to, he's getting into the car to drive off and fly away someplace. And he's about to get into the car, and then he took off his shoes. He took off his shoes, and he gave his shoes to Rinpoche. You're stepping into my shoes. And the, the friend of mine who just told me this, because he's an old-time student of Gautra Rinpoche, when he tur- literally turned his shoes over to Gautra Rinpoche, he said, Gautra Rinpoche just turned white. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, clearly there must have been an enormous amount of trust on the part of Dujan Rinpoche for, for his disciple Gautra Rinpoche. And Gajar Rinpoche, then 1994, having been teaching, then he came, came to Canada, to North America in 1972, and was teaching, and then shortly thereafter came down to the United States, made that his, his base of teaching. Um, but there in 1990, 1994, so 22 years later, uh, he chose the text to teach, and he did something I've not heard any other Lama do. And that is, as he began the teaching, or maybe even before, but right at the beginning, he said, now, we'll go through this text, start to finish. We'll leave out nothing, and that includes Tekchut, core Dzogchen practice, and then Tutgel, the culminating phase, which is generally taught only to small groups of people that you're very, very carefully groomed and, and you know, assessed that they're really ready for the teaching, and then you give. You know, but it's generally it's not, a, not a public teaching, not one that's given to large groups of people at a time. That's the way it's been historically for a long time. And Gajar Nambachi told this this group of students who came, a number of them, very old-time students of him, who had been studying with him, practicing with him for 10, 20 years. He said, all right, well, for these teachings now, as we go through this text, um, anybody who has the faith to come to these teachings, that's so with, with faith, with the true aspiration to put the teachings into practice, with an open mind, with sincere sincerity and devotion, you're welcome to come. You're welcome to come. And he did, said nothing about you have to have an empowerment. He didn't give an empowerment for this. He did, made no reference to any empowerment, nor did he say, oh, you have to have finished such and such preliminary practices. And moreover, he said, you don't have to be Buddhist. If you come here from whatever background and you'd really, with a sincere interest to, to put these teachings into practice, you have faith, then whether you're Buddhist or not Buddhist, you're welcome to attend. And lo and behold, there were about two Christian nuns who attended very regularly the entire teaching. So um, he, over the course of time, I spoke with Sangha Kando, who just during a seven-year period, she stepped back and allowed me to step in. I mean, just simply put, for seven years I got to be his primary interpreter. But for years before then and after, she has been his primary interpreter and clearly his closest, closest Western disciple, closest disciple, I think. But she told me among the range of lamas, because she is, boy, she's, she may be the most, she together with Matthew Ricard, the most savvy Westerner who has just immersed herself in the Nyingma tradition for more than 40 years now. And she, I don't know, it's just total immersion. Uh, she's, I think she probably is the most Tibetan Westerner I know in a very good sense of the term. There's nothing phony about it, nothing contrived. She's not pretending anything. A very sincere practitioner uh, and has translated for so many great lamas. It's kind of unbelievable. But in any case, she was saying, knowing really, I think she knows the full spectrum of Nyingma lamas of the last 
40 years, among the spectrum of them, some of them are very, very conservative, very, very conservative, buy the book, boom, 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 like that. Uh, and she said, well, within the spectrum, Gatcher Rinpoche is, he's very open. He's very open. Uh, just that, that's what she said. And it's certainly true. The fact that he would give these teachings to people who simply, that's all he asked, come with respect, come with devotion, come with faith, come with the wish to put these into practice, and you're welcome to come. And so he basically finished the teaching, and as he had done with me with earlier texts that he's taught, and practices, he authorized me to teach the entire text. And so I've taught on a number of occasions in Santa Barbara many years ago, just as, as, as weekly evening sessions, the Wednesday night lectures they were called, long, long time ago, um, almost 20 years ago. And, uh, and then I've taught, I've taught this excerpt on the Shamatha Without a Sign many, many times, uh, but almost always within the context of a one-week retreat. What we'll be doing this time is we'll follow exactly what he says. Now, we will pick up in Shamadu without sign. I won't have you looking at stones and, and sticks and, and flowers. You're welcome to do that, kind of these, these coarser practices leading up to. But there are no novices here. None of, you, none of you are coming here like, this is your first retreat, don't have any idea what's up and what is Buddhism. After all, you know, to varying degrees, you've all been practicing for some time. And so this is so. It's not even remotely like I feel that everything that comes up to preceding shamatha without a sign is somehow not important. That is absolutely not the implication. But the implication is that I feel you're coming in with a lot of practice, uh, some of you for decades, and that one way or another, explicitly or implicitly, you're already familiar with. You know, you have some real familiarity with the material that comes before, which is very important. Um, but again, just to make the make the simple point. Uh, we're going to now have a very short teaching session. The teaching session will be my reading the meditation directly from Padmasambhava. And he gives the teaching, and as you will see when we do the session, he says, do this for one day. Well, we'll do a new for one day. How about that? Why don't we just do what he said? Whereas when I'm leaving this in the seven-day retreat, then we do it for one session, then we're moving on to another, you know, another, another practice. I mean, when I lead one-week retreats, people say it's like trying to drink from a fire hydrant. And there's a lot of truth to that. But here it's more spoon-feeding, you know, day by day, day by day. Hopefully not overwhelming. So I will be reading directly from the text. And so I invite you now to, if you're very comfortable in the sitting position, that is, if there is such a thing, as a comfortable cushion for you, where you can sit cross-legged for 24 minutes. Excellent. If not, that's what the supine's for. So please find a comfortable position. Uh, and Beatrice and Michael, check your email tomorrow. I'll send you something. Okay, check your email tomorrow. Beatrice? Yeah? And Michael, check your email tomorrow. Yeah. There's a little Santa Claus is coming. <laughs> Hola, so.
as you've done before, and now should be very familiar with. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. And then if you find it helpful to count breathing, rest your awareness in its own place. And as we've been practicing for the last several days, maintain this peripheral awareness of the, of the rhythm, the flow, of the in and out breath. And count the breaths 1 to 21 with one brief succinct count at the end of each inhalation. For those of you who find the counting a bit distracting, cluttering up the mind, then no need to do that. Just for a couple of minutes. Calm the discursive mind as you arouse and focus your awareness with each inhalation. Relax in releasing thoughts, images, and memories with each exhalation. Let your mind settle in a relative state of equipoise as a preparation for the main practice.
now we move to the main practice. <clears throat> Padmasambhava begins by the statement, position your body as before. <clears throat> He's explained earlier that you settle your body in its natural state in this context, in the cross-legged position, the seven-point posture of Arochana. You can easily read about that in the earlier pages. And I think most, if not all, of you are already familiar. So settle your body there, relaxed, still without any fidgeting. If you are indeed sitting upright, your spine straight. And then he continues. Then while steadily gazing into the space in front of you, without meditating on anything, steadily concentrate your consciousness without wavering in the space in front of you. So commentary, this clearly implies your eyes are open. You bring your awareness out into the space in front of you, but without meditating on anything, that is, you're not focusing any vi- on any visual object, any shape or color, and not even focusing on space as an object. You're simply bringing your awareness out into space and resting it there. He says, steadily concentrate your consciousness. Sustain the focus. It is a focus with no object, no target. Simply a resting of your awareness in space. He says, steadily concentrate your consciousness without wavering. absence of wavering comes about by a core, deep sense of looseness, of ease, of releasing all grasping. It is grasping that agitates the mind. bit of further commentary. Many Dzogchen practitioners find when doing such practice that there's a greater sense of unimpededness, of looseness, of openness. If your mouth is slightly open and you allow the unimpeded flow of the breath in and out of your mouth rather than breathing through the nostrils. This is not imperative. It's not mentioned here in the text. But you may experiment to see which gives you the greater sense of looseness, of openness, breathing through the nostrils, or gently, effortlessly breathing through the mouth. Experiment. Steadily concentrate your consciousness without wavering in the space in front of you. Increase stability and then relax again. 
So this is Padmasabhava's signature technique. It comes up again and again. This oscillation of arousal and release, of more intensely focusing, stabilizing, stilling your awareness, and then utterly releasing your awareness, but without dulling the flow of cognizance. Arouse and release. He makes no reference to the breath here. But as a preliminary exercise in order to facilitate this practice, help you get into the flow of the practice, if you find it helpful in the early phases to conjoin this oscillation with the in and out flow of the breath, you may certainly do so, as we've done before. As the breath flows in, you concentrate, you focus, you stabilize your awareness. And as the breath flows out, you relax. He continues, occasionally check out what is that consciousness that is concentrating. Steadily concentrate again, and then check it out again. Do that in an alternating fashion. Commentary. As you're simply resting there, releasing your awareness into space, without focusing on any object, not even the space of the mind. Like right now. When your attention is not fixated on any object, then the subjective experience of being conscious arises more and more vividly. Focus right in upon that experience of being aware, the very consciousness that is concentrating. And let your awareness illuminate and know itself. And then release Arouse in the spirit of inquiry. Arouse your awareness, focusing in on, on the very experience of being conscious. Release again.
you've moved one step away from mindfulness of breathing, that is, with no interest in the duration of each in and out breath, if you're attending to it at all, it's just the timekeeper. It just sets the rhythm. But virtually all of your awareness is right there, awareness resting in its own place, knowing itself. Whatever thoughts arise, like clouds that briefly pass between you and the sun, but just move right on, or soft cloud formations that appear in the sky and dissolve back into the sky, without doing anything about them, without trying to modify them. Simply let them be without giving any attention to them deliberately. Let them come and go. And with this core sense of relaxation, the grasping will not occur and will not carry you away. When they do, relax. Release whatever moved your attention away. And let your awareness once again mount its throne rest in its own place, knowing itself. Again, he writes to repeat. Steadily concentrate again and then check it out again. Do that in an alternating fashion. Even if there are problems of laxity and lethargy, that will dispel them. And in all your activities, rely upon unwavering mindfulness. Do that for one day. <laughs> 
practice. Continue practicing now in silence.
There will be a time. Um, practical note, not for the podcast, but it's not a big deal. Uh, Michael, do you even have an, an, a way of, of downloading anything? Because you, you said you didn't bring the computer. Then, Elizabeth, if you could give your spare copy to Michael, okay? And Beatrice, you'll get something in the mail. Because you brought a computer or something, yes? You brought a computer or something like that, yeah? Very good. Okay, I'll send you something. Very good. Oh, that's There's a sound problem? Aha. You can always sit closer. I don't mind. You don't have cooties. <laughs> or if you do, you have to tell me. Um, oh, but also, I mean, I, I com of course, completely forgot what Guillermo uh, asked me to do the other day. Speak slowly and with very clear articulation. So that will help, too. Yeah? Oh, I do that, yeah. I've been doing that for years. So people tell me. By the time we get to the end of the sentence, I've lost interest in that <laughs> sentence. So I just, I figure, you know, you must figure it out, right? I know what I was about to say. Okay. I, I can't hear you. Uh, 105. 105, yep. 105. That's where we're beginning, on page 105. So I, may, I would like to make just a couple of comments here. Um, as usual, this is extremely dense. Not dense as in turgid, difficult to understand, but just very compact. And so I think a lot of this is utterly clear, and you're familiar with it already. I simply want to highlight the end of this, where he says, having set out the, the method, which is very simple, he said, even if there are problems of laxity and lethargy, that will dispel them. So there's the first point. For those of you who have studied shamatha a lot, you'll notice something is flagrant for its absence uh, that is strikingly absent, and that is there's no reference here to introspection. But in all the classic teachings, I mean, these are the two, these are the two pedals of the bicycle to shamatha land. You know, mindfulness, introspection, mindfulness, introspection. There's no reference here anywhere, and it doesn't come up later in shamatha without a sign. Not there. So what's up with that? Well, there's just a factual statement. It's not there. So now an interpretation. When you're practicing any type of shamatha with a sign, which is kind of like all the other methods, because all the other methods have a target. You're attending to something. Your thoughts, or even the space of the mind, a stick, a bindu of light, a vajrasattva image, a Buddha image, whatever it may be. Then there's a vector to your attention. There's a, it's, like, it's, it's called... Here's your awareness. Here's your, here's your object. Right? I'm holding up two fingers here for podcast people. There's the rope of mindfulness that connects your awareness, your attention, to the object of mindfulness. Right? The rope of mindfulness. Very, very common metaphor. Right? Now, the rope can get too slack. It can also get so taut it might snap. So that mindfulness, you want to make sure it's the right tension, not too tight not too slack. And in terms of the flow of mindfulness, you want to make sure that it's not just falling into laxity and dullness, but also that excitation is not just carrying your rope away. You know, like some eagle that comes down, swoops up and carries your rope away. And now here's your awareness, you know, following after into the sky, following the eagle. And so when there's that vector of here's your awareness and here's the object that you're attending to, 
then there needs to be some quality control to monitor the mindfulness. Is it too tight? Is it too slack? Right? Are you being carried by, carried by, by excitation, or are you falling into laxity and dullness? So this is what just popped up in my mind yesterday to connect this. Remember I spoke just a day or two ago of the five faculties that can become powers when I spoke of faith and how to balance it with attention, right? Well, then we have samadhi and the other two pair, the other, other pair is samadhi and virya, actually. Samadhi and virya. It just struck me right now. I'm just kind of, thank you, mind. You give me a lot of good stuff here. Good material. Uh, virya isn't just effort. In fact, it doesn't really primarily mean effort. It's primarily enthusiasm. That's, that's really its definition. You remember, yeah? It's that taking delight in virtue, whether it's your meditation, act of generosity, devotions, whatever it may be. It's that taking delight, right? So we have these two to balance. The taking delight in, which of course does entail some effort, you're really focusing. It's sometimes called enthusiastic perseverance. Not a bad translation. But to balance that, the introspection with samadhi, right? Those are the two balancing things. And so introspection is there to maintain the balance, to maintain the balance. And so whether it's faith and intelligence, crucial. Discussed that yesterday, no need to go again. To maintain the balance between that real single-pointedness but also the enthusiasm, mindfulness is in the center Mindfulness, and, and together with that implicitly is introspection, monitoring the flow, monitoring the flow. But that's when there's this, this vector, this target. But now we're shamatu without a sign. There's no target. There's no vector. There's no rope. What, what would the rope do? Go around your neck? You know, there's no rope because there's no here and there. As he said, you're starting off by not meditating on anything. That's how you get into this practice by resting without a target, without doing anything. And then, again, just that immediate, unmediated experience of being conscious rises, but there's no from here to there to it. It's just immediately present. But then he has this oscillation. The oscillation of the arousal, the intent, one can say the intensification, the, in, the heightening intensity of awareness. That's actually a pretty good term. Heightening of intensity. What it is not is a contraction, like coming into some, like into the pineal gland or something, like some contraction inside your head, and then like you know balloon head and then pinhead balloon head. Really bad idea. Okay, so don't do that. It's not a spatial expansion and contraction. It's an intensification, which doesn't imply any geometry, right? No geometry and intensification. It's an intensification, and then a, a softening. A release. Intensification. So if there's a mudra, it's not this. It's intensification and then release. That intensification is simply highlighting the sheer luminosity of your own awareness. And you keep on coming back to it like a moth to the flame. And it's that, that very oscillation itself, that repeated coming back to that intensification of the awareness just holding its own ground brilliantly, that burns away the mist of laxity and dullness. 
So you don't need something outside to be monitoring. It's an inside job. It's taken care of inside. So there's no outside antidotes. What to do? What shall I do if, if I have dullness? And, well, should I focus on a bright light? Should I do this? Should I do that? He said, this is a different approach. And that is, this really is. It's my words, but boy, I have a lot of confidence in them. This is a matter of discovering shamatha rather than developing it. A matter of discovering the innate luminosity, the brilliance, the radiance, the clarity of awareness. Discovering it, unveiling it, rather than seeking to arduously cultivate it. Right. And likewise, it's not so much a matter of cultivating stability, cultivating the stillness of awareness, but rather releasing all grasping, and in the absence of grasping, awareness is naturally still. So you're discovering shamatha, you're discovering luminosity, you're discovering stillness, and how are you discovering it? By relaxation. Loose. So that's what I think he's getting at. I'll read the sentence again. It's a simple sentence. Even if there are problems of laxity and lethargy, that will dispel them because you're coming right into the fire, right into the luminosity itself. And you, you just can't bring, you can't bring laxity or lethargy into the fire. You can't bring dullness inside a flame. Something's got to give. You either have to snuff out the flame, or else the dullness has to just vanish. And that's what happens. Okay? So there's that. And I've been teaching this for many years, and began practicing it seriously in 1980 when I was in Sri Lanka, actually, having almost burnt myself to a crisp doing really, really difficult visualization practices. Man, they almost just... What's the phrase? They got my knickers in a twist. <laughs> and I said, I can't do this, you know. I'm just going to burn out doing this. And then I thought back to teachings Geshe Rapten had given me five years earlier from the pensioner, which is teachings on Mahamudra and Mahamudra Dzogchen, excuse me, Mahamudra Shamata. And lo and behold, we're, this is it, with just a bit more elaboration. And I just want to say this, just, I want to put the seed in your mind, just so that you don't have to repeat errors I've made. You remember the Dalai Lama's comment, is it necessary to have a guru to achieve enlightenment? You remember, right? And he said, no. But it can save you a lot of time. Okay? So... As I've said, and I absolutely mean, I'm coming here simply as a spiritual friend. If I can save you some time, good. So here's something not to do. Now, there I was, I was sitting in my little, my little grass hut in, in Sri Lanka, in a, in a hermitage with some other monks. I was a monk at the time. And I was really drawn to this. I was intuitively drawn to it before. I figured, okay, now's my chance. You know, meals were taken care of. Once a day, the villagers would come up and bring us a big meal, big alms bowl full of food. So everything taken care of, quiet out in the jungle. And I started doing this practice. And some of, a number of you have seen me do this before, but I'm going to say it anyway because the imprint needs to be there. Here's, I remember so vividly, here's how I practiced. You might know something there. I wasn't breathing. <laughs> I was too busy to breathe. 
I had a full-time job, and I didn't want any disturbance from in and out breath, in and out breath, like, shut up, I'm really busy here. I'm trying to concentrate, so shh. That doesn't work out very well. If you've already achieved the fourth jhana, no problem. But I had not. And so this is why I've been emphasizing all along. And boy, do I mean it. When you're doing this practice, it's pretty intense. You're coming right into the very nucleus of your awareness. In the relative domain, there's nothing much more intense than that. This is a powerhouse. This is one of the forces of nature. Not just some little effluent from your brain. This is something really core. When I was speaking with you a couple of, uh, one of you a couple of days ago, uh, just yesterday actually, when you enter into this practice, you just start doing it. It's like going to that, there's a trench off the coast of Japan that's going incredibly deep. Remember the name of it? But it's really, really deep. It's like one of the deepest places on earth. It's like, it's like five miles deep. You know, the, the ocean goes down. Uh, very famous. But it's, it's like swimming on the surface of the water there. And you're on the surface. I mean, you just started practicing, and there you are. You're on the surface of your mind. You're not suddenly gone transcendent. But if you just stay there and allow yourself to descend... You're going to go a long way. You'll descend right through your mind, right down to the ground of the substrate. And if you keep on releasing, it doesn't stop there. You'll break right through to the Rikpa. So I've taught it. So allowing the breathing to flow unimpededly, effortlessly, loosely, with utter relaxation. Really core. Really, really core. So just occasionally check up to see that you're not bearing down too hard and in any way giving rise to contraction in the body or any type of suppression or constriction of the respiration. Really important. Save you a lot of time. I'm persuaded that a lot of people doing sadhanas and visualizations and, and shamatha focusing on an image and so forth, I'm persuaded they're letting their respiration go off. Tight impeded, breaking the flow. And then, lo and behold, they start having all these prana disorders. You know. Why are we surprised? You know, the method itself is making you sick. That is, not the method, like Tsongkhapa taught something bad or somebody else. No, not that at all, not even remotely. But our modern hyper-mind taking practices that were really good for Tibetans 500 years ago, easy peasy. But we're not Tibetans 500 years ago. So we're either hopeless or else we have to modify and take into account that we're bringing different minds and different nervous systems into practice, which doesn't mean concocting some brand new dharma. It does mean that we really have to learn how to release, to emulate this much more spacious, more relaxed mode of being. And I don't mean to idealize Tibetans. They shouldn't be idealized. But it's a simple, blunt fact that if you're living as a nomad 100 years ago in Tibet, the lifestyle is different than living in Chicago. Nowadays, really different. And that's not speculation. So, there we are. So that's the point. That would be my interpretation of why there's no reference to introspection here. Why he's saying this practice alone may be quite sufficient for dispelling one of the two imbalances of attention, the laxity, the lethargy, the dullness. And then we have this one final sentence, really simple. In all your activities rely upon unwavering mindfulness. So this is now, we are now in, 
I don't think it gets much more ideal than this. And even our food is, they even wash our dishes. They even, you know, just put your, bag, your, clothes in a, your dirty clothes in a bag and lo and behold, they come back clean and they, they clean our rooms. It's not that common, you know, in retreat centers. Uh, and so everything's taken care of for us here. So there's nothing from outside to prevent us from just going, going into a flow of practice. And when he says, do this for one day, that's what I would suggest. We've now just finished, or basically we finished one week of the retreat. So one-eighth has already gone by. Right? Right? So, not a day to lose. And so, we're starting here in the afternoon, and what I would encourage you now, because <clears throat> we're going to move on to the next paragraph tomorrow afternoon. This will be history. You should have been there. You know? Uh, that for the next 24 hours, as much as you can, practice always. Maintain unwavering mindfulness in all your activities. Now, it's not simply the mindfulness that is taught in Vipassana, modern Vipassana tradition. I have no criticism of that at all. But it's not that. It's not eating the raisin mindfully and eating slowly and walking slowly and being very aware of the environment and so forth. That's all good. I have no criticism. Zero, nothing, nothing. It's just not the same. It's not the same practice. For those of you who attended Gangtadugal Rinpoche's teachings just a couple of weeks ago in Santa Barbara, he gave one day of Dzogchen teachings, really core, right to the essence of it. In one day, it was quite breathtaking, actually. And when he discussed the method, the practice, having introduced the view, then he spoke, okay, what do we do for method? Well, the method was just right next door to this. It's on the cushion and between sessions. Awareness resting in its own place. And not only resting in the awareness of awareness, but as we'll do tomorrow, so don't jump start this, don't jump ahead, we'll get to it tomorrow. We have a, uh, we have a full day of 24 hours just doing that one paragraph. But I will say right now that in addition to this ongoing flow of unwavering mindfulness, the awareness of awareness, which is different than being aware of eating and talking and moving and extending limbs and aware of the clouds and the chirping of the birds. All of that is fine. It's good. It's called coming to your senses. It is really a very good, frank, frankly, I'll just give my interpretation, it's a very good preschool for shamatha. It's not vipassana. There's no element of inquiry. It's not, it's not shamatha because it's not selective. It's not Mahamudra Dzogchen. There's no Dzogchen view or Mahamudra view. So it's, an, it's none of the above, this modern mindfulness. Very beneficial to so many people. So I don't want to criticize. It's something really helpful. Why should we criticize? And it's a good motive. In many cases, I think really good motivation. I know John Gabison. He's got a good heart. Helps so many people. So what can you do besides praise? But in praising, then he, that doesn't mean you have to make incorrect statements. And so it's not Shamat, it's not Vipassana, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, but I would say it is a way of coming to your senses that if you've really done that, releasing rumination, being very present in the present moment, if you move from that to shamatha practice, that's a really good preparation. And the shamatha to authentic vipassana, entailing a spirit of inquiry, and then on you go. But now the, the type of unwavering mindfulness here is not simply being aware of what's coming to mind, coming to the senses, and so forth. The central theme, the central feature, of this unwavering mindfulness is you're continuing to do what he just said in between sessions. So you give 
to the world what it needs. If you're walking, doing a little walk around here, doing, going evening walk as I normally do, of course, don't bump into things. Be aware of the environment as much as you need to, no problem. But in the midst of the, mo- of the motion, as we were previously aware of the motion of the in and out breath, the duration of each in breath and out breath, in the midst of the motion, the stillness, right? Absolutely core. Likewise, when you're out, you, you walk to the cafeteria, you're eating, you're going for a walk, you're lying down, whatever you're doing, in the midst of these moving appearances, the visual, the auditory, and so forth, as if you're sitting in a theater, a 3D IMAX, where you're surrounded by the imagery, the sounds of the movie, but you're not getting out of your chair. Right? And you're aware of the stillness of your own body, the stillness of your own awareness. Right? It's not the same, of course, only as an analogy. Stillness, while even all around you there are appearances arising and passing, the sense of movement. But in fact, the awareness isn't moving. Any more than you're moving, any more than your chair is moving in the IMAX theater, the 3D theater. Of course not. But in a similar way, this is a close analogy. Just as you may have the sense of moving, years ago, you know, I, I, one, of, one of those, I can't remember what it was, but they, they mounted a, 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 the, the, the camera on a roller coaster. And then, whoo, you go down, you have that, oh, like that. People in the movie theater, whoo, like that, you know. Because you have the sense of being in motion, but that's because you're grasping, right? Otherwise, you just see a lot of images coming. And so there it is, that stillness of awareness, even as the images are coming and coming and coming. And you can do everything you like. Everything that needs to be done, you can do in the world, but your awareness is still. That's what he's referring to. And that is for one day maintain unwavering mindfulness. It's awareness resting in its own place. The stillness simultaneous with the awareness of motion. Visual, auditory, tactile, change, change, change. When we reify, when we grasp, there's change, and awareness is moving right along with it. It's going here, it's going there, it's going up, it's going down, it's getting sad, it's getting happy, and so forth and so on. The, one of the synonyms for sentient being in Tibetan is doa, which means going. You're going, 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 going. You know, this is stillness. Right? So that's the type of awareness that is entailed here. Now, and I'll leave it at that, because Gantendugu said something further for the Dzogchen method, but there's no reason to say it now. We have our hands full, and I'll say that tomorrow, because he said something in addition to that. So that's the practice for one day. I hope it's quite clear. I want to go back. I'm not going to read much, pretty much just like one sentence here. But as I reviewed and kind of pondered, shall I give the oral transmission to an earlier part? And then finally decided, I don't think necessary. Not, not on this occasion. I might do it on some other occasion. But not this one. Uh, there was, let's see if I can find it pretty quickly here. So the actual, the... Um, the beginning of the teachings on shamatha, my translation is quiescence. I did this translation 20 years ago, so it's not quite the same way I translate. Some words here and there are different. The actual teachings on shamatha itself begin on page 95. But there's something before that that really caught my attention. And this is where it's the very beginning of the, the whole section on quiescence, which begins, unsurprisingly, with settling body, speech, and mind in their natural states. 
I want to read just this first paragraph, and that's all I'm going to read. The rest of it I think you can read, and I think you will understand it quite clearly. Uh, but something will not jump out at you. And so I'm going to read this on page 90. Just one practice right at the beginning of the chapter. By the way, the indented is the root text, and the, the text that's brighter, that's Gautama, which is commentary. So Padmasambhava says, for the practice of the instructions on the transitional process of living, and which are practical instructions that are like a swallow entering its nest, which are for cutting through outer and inner superimpositions, or projections upon reality. For this, for this practice of the instructions on the transitional process of living, which consists of Shamadhi Vipassana, for this, there is an establishment of the foundation consciousness. And the first of three parts is settling the body in its natural state. Now this will throw you, because foundation consciousness is my earlier translation of alaivichnana. Not an incorrect translation. Gunji means foundation or all basis. It's a literal translation. But as the years went by, I shifted over to substrate and I've stuck there. But it's the same word. So I just want you to know that he said that, that this is, there's an establishment of the substrate consciousness. I've been translating that in that way for years now. But it's, I find it very interesting and significant that this is the very first thing he says for this whole transitional phase or process of living. That for this practice, in order to really venture into and succeed in the practice, this transitional process of living, there is an establishment. Now, establishment means you need to determine. Establishment means to determine, to ascertain, to, see, to understand clearly, to recognize. Foundation, substrate consciousness. That's core. That's your basis. And then the first of the three parts for doing so, settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state, is settling the body in its natural state. Well, you know about that. So then I don't need to give further commentary there. But I think this is very significant here. That's all I'll do for the text today. Is that he's highlighting this right off, right off, right off the bat. The first thing he says is that for this whole phase of practice, in order to let this transitional phase or process, they're both good translations, the bardo, of living, in order for this to be an effective launching pad to achieve liberation, awakening, in this mode, in this living mode, that he says the first thing to do is to establish, to determine substrate consciousness. It's quite interesting. The Tibetan, Tibetan once again, is gesit bardo, transitional transitional phase of being born and then becoming. Like you throw the dice and then they roll. Well, it's not a bad analogy. In the Buddhist understanding, we're thrown into this life. It's called penchekile, propulsive karma. Propels us from lifetime to lifetime. If you're an ordinary person, if you're a bodhisattva, a vidyadana, a great being, you're not thrown anywhere. It's the power of your aspirations, your prayers. Or you simply direct your attention as you would in a lucid dream. Not even power of aspirations and prayers. You simply say, okay, we're there. So there's no propulsion. But for ordinary beings who are not lucid, then how do we get where we, where we get? If you're born in Africa, Australia, born as a human being, some non-human being, how did you get there? It's this propulsion by karma. Our own karma. Nobody else has done it to us. But to understand, to fathom, this transitional phase that we call human life, then it would be to understand that, to fathom that, 
and to be able to enable that, to be your launching pad, your basis for proceeding along the path and achieve, achieving awakening, then it certainly makes a lot of sense to know where did this come from? Where did this, where did this current existence? Here I am as a human being. I happen to be a man this time, and so forth. And, and this one was born in California, etc. Where did it come from? Where did it come from? Because 60, 60 years ago, I was not Californian. I was not a human being, at least not this one. And so, where? Where from? That's the substrate consciousness. Substrate consciousness. It's the beginning and the end. It's the bookends. It's the bookends of this novel that we call this human life. It starts with the substrate consciousness. It ends with the substrate consciousness. And in between is what you call your life. The transitional phase of being born and then becoming. The novel rolls itself out as we write our own novels because nobody else has written it for us. So I found that very significant that he's really highlighting this and immediately having said that, the first thing he talks about then is settling your body in its natural state. Right? Then settling the speech in its natural state. Settling the mind in its natural state as a preparation for venturing into these formal practices of shamatha that he sets out Sets forth step by step. Now, final point, I think, and that is having taught this for some years, um, quite frequently, there are some people that, having taught it, done a guided meditation, as I've just led, uh, they come afterwards and said, I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't do it. I didn't know what to do. I did, couldn't follow the instructions, have no confidence at all. Uh, that was just too abstract, too subtle. Like, I couldn't do it. I think I'm going to go back to the breath. You know? The difficulty is only in their minds. It's not in the practice. I mean, I pro I'll probably bring a quote tomorrow from Padmasambhava. It's really juicy on that theme. But for right now, I'll just be brief. And that is, I'm going to use the Russian doll analogy again. And that is, let's start with this, what do they call open monitoring. Open monitoring, or simply bear attention. John Kabat-Zinn style, Vipassana style. Just being discerning, intelligently, wide open, attending to whatever arises from moment to moment. Much, much better than just being caught up in rumination, anxiety, compulsive you know, ideation and so forth. This is definitely a step in the right direction, right? And so imagine you start there. Your sense is wide open, clear, not carried away by rumination and so forth and so on. Good place to start. Coming to your senses, literally, right? So it's not shamad, not vipassana, and so forth. But okay, this is good though. This is a good place to start. You're kind of present and not crazy. That's good. So there you are, wide open to the environment, other people in the environment, your body and so forth. And then we'll start a process here. Process is one you're very familiar with. So I'm just going to put words on something you're already very familiar with. It, and that is you start to practice mindfulness of breathing. Right? Uh, which means then that you have just engaged in a very significant step of retreat. And that is you are withdrawing from, retreating from the sensory environment. Other people, the outside world, basically everything outside your skin. There's a lot happening out there. In fact, almost everything is happening out there, the rest of the universe. But you've just done a major step into retreat 
away from everything in the universe outside your skin. Right? That's a big retreat. And now it's selective attention. Now you can start talking about shamatha. And so there you are. Let's imagine you're doing the asanga style, full body mindfulness of, of breathing, aware of the flows of energy throughout the body as you're breathing in and breathing out, and throughout the entire field, not only the abdomen, the nostrils, the chest, but also the flows of energy as you're breathing in and out, and recognizing those, those pulsings, those movements that are correlated with the in and out breath. And you're stabilizing that, and you are focusing then on the sensations of movement of prana within the body related to the in and out breath. Noting when they're long, they're short, and so on. Well, before you're doing that, you're already breathing. And before doing that, you're probably implicitly aware of breathing. It's not some mysterious hidden entity, right? And so you're already breathing, number one. And number two, you probably had some peripheral or at least implicit awareness that you weren't holding your breath. You know? So what you're doing there is you're continuing to do what you're already doing, breathing, and you're making an awareness that might very well have been implicit, explicit. But that's not hard. Right? It's not hard to know breathing coming in, breathing coming out, and to directly perceive the flow of sensations, the flow of prana and so forth in the body as that happens. Right. So there's the first step. But now if you're doing the practice correctly, fully, you're not just focusing your mindfulness on the, on the sensations of the breath. Now there's a rope. There's your awareness and the sensations of the breath in your body. So there's a rope of mindfulness, which means introspection. Good. You must be monitoring that flow, of that flow of mindfulness to recognize whether excitation or laxity have set in, and if they do, then you need to apply the remedies. But if you're applying, applying introspection there, introspection necessarily means, in this context, that you are aware of what's going on in the mind to some extent. If your mind is wandering on, telling a whole story, you need to be aware of that, right? If your mind, your awareness is getting dull, spaced out, you need to be aware of that. Not just aware of the breath, aware of the mind that is aware of the breath which means that you retreated from the entire universe outside your skin, you're explicitly fo focusing your awareness primarily on the sensations of the breath, but secondarily and very importantly, you are also introspectively aware of what's going on in the mind, to the extent necessary, to maintain clear, continuous mindfulness of breathing. All very clear, isn't it familiar? Yeah. That was one big step of retreat. Now we'll do another one. And it's also so familiar. It should be kind of comfortable. You think you know what you, you think probably think you know what I'm going to say. Isn't that comfortable? Settling the mind in its natural state, taking the mind as the path. Now you're going to go deeper into retreat. Because now you're going to withdraw your awareness, that is the deliberately given awareness. You're no longer no longer going to deliberately give your attention to anything in the body. Pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, tingling, vibration, whatever it is. It may grab some of your attention, but you don't give any of your attention to it. You are withdrawing your attention away from the now all five of the five physical senses, very much including you're withdrawing your attention away from the sensations throughout this entire somatic field. You're focusing the full force of your mindfulness now in just one out of six domains of experience, the mental domain, and you're attending to that domain, the space of the mind and whatever comes up in it, single-pointedly, Oh, and I should mention also, I have to backtrack a tiny bit. 
I'm going to backtrack two steps, just because it's important. So pardon me, a little bit of disorganization. When you're just coming to your senses, being wide open, right? you're probably implicitly aware of your body. If you're really there, you're also aware of your thoughts, because you're not blocking those out. But also, as you're just aware, like right, just right now, just being aware of the room. You're also, right now, before I said anything, you're aware of being aware. You're not oblivious to that fact, even though you may be looking at an insect, eating a raisin or whatever. So you're aware of the surrounding, you're aware of your body, implicitly, probably aware to some degree of your breathing, aware to some degree of what's going on in the mind. Are you happy, sad, bored, what? And also, in the midst of that, some awareness of being aware. Some. And then there's this withdrawal into the body. Explicitly focusing your mindfulness on the sensations of the breath. Secondarily, on what the activities of the mind, but they're also, as you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, without trying to do anything more, just by the sheer fact that you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, you are aware of being aware. Okay? And then, so now I've, I've caught up, I had to bring that in. And now you come to taking the mind as a path, right? So you're withdrawn from the body, all the five physical senses, focusing on the space of the mind, activities in the mind, but as you're doing that, and you're maintaining that stillness of your awareness in the midst of the movements of the mind, you are aware of being aware. It comes to the territory. How, how can you not be? You know? You're aware of being aware. But there's still a vector, a directionality of your attention to the space of the mind, whatever arises. Even if you focus on the space of the mind, and you're not even attending to the comings and goings, just focusing on the space, there's still a vector. You're still attending to something. right? And then we move to this practice. And as a further retreat, it's right in the same line, the same continuum as what you've done from the beginning when you're just in this open presence or open monitoring. But now we withdraw the awareness even from the mind. No longer interested. No longer interested. My mind, my personal history, my thoughts, my emotions. Man, I've seen that movie so many times. It's got nothing more to tell me. Man, especially, I mean, youngsters, it might be still interesting. You know, maybe something. But boy, when you've had a mind for 64 years, it's like, that's an old marriage. Like, <laughs> hello, honey. <laughs> you know? Like, boy, we've, we've been together a long time. You know? And so there's nothing much new there. You know? It's all right, you've had your time. I'm taking a retreat. <laughs> Take care of yourself. Be well. <laughs> Whatever. Give you a secret handshake, but buzz off. And you withdraw from your own mind. You don't deliberately give any attention to the space of your mind, thoughts, emotions, blah, 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 blah. None. Give it none. It, may, it will take some, but don't give it any. Now you're just resting in awareness of awareness. You see the point here? It's all a process of subtraction. So to come to this final one that we've just done today and say you can't do it makes no sense. What you can't do is something hard that you've conjured up in your mind, which is probably impossible to do anyway. And then you come and say, I can't do it. But what you can't do is some conjured up way of mispracticing. Because you've been doing it all along. And so now you're just doing less. So it's not doing something more that's really subtle, really difficult and esoteric. It's kind of like you just stop doing everything else. This is what's left. But it was always there. 
And so that's why he just says, rest your awareness in space. And then as you're doing that, not deliberately giving attention to anything, then after some seconds or minutes, you may ask yourself, as I'm now not deliberately focusing on any object whatsoever, neither sensory nor mental, am I aware of anything? It's a real good question. Am I clearly aware of anything when I'm not focusing on anything? Nice question. I'll say it again. Am I clearly aware of anything when I'm not focusing on anything? And rather than answering that question intellectually, you just look closely. And it really, I love this, I love the verb, it dawns on you. Yeah. Yes, definitely yes. Absolutely yes, with total certainty. I am aware of something. I'm aware of awareness. I really, really am. And that's something. So that's the practice. So I'll read a nice quote, if I remember, I think I will, from Padmasambhava, when he's really kind of almost scolding people, chiding people. And they say, I can't do it. This is too hard. It's too hard. Anything else? I think that's it. Yeah. So I saw you moving about. Not to any question or comment? It looked like you had something. It looked like you were bubbling over with something. No? It simmered down? It looked like some milk was about to boil over. Maybe you turned down the stove. Ooh. <laughs> Is it all clear? Yes, go ahead, Joe. My microphone coming. Oh, we have one here? Go ahead, Ricky, go ahead. There'll be time for two. So, Amir? Yes. Thank you. I was wondering, just for clarification, um, what I'm looking to do between formal sessions is I'm not doing the intensifying, relaxing. No need for that. Good, very good point. Yeah, no need to intensify, release, intensify. That's really for the formal practice on the cushion. In between sessions, it's softer. That is, you don't want to be getting uptight, straining, straining. Oh, this is too hard. I'm getting totally exhausted here. It's not that. It's very relaxed, but you're quite right. No oscillation needed, but it is maintaining, maintaining of a kind of a stillness, a clarity within, in the midst of the movements. And second clarification, just to see if my... Um, conception meets what you're talking about. Sure, sure. I guess um, I just imagined um, being dead the good old-fashioned uh, materialistic way. Yeah. Which I did a lot when I was a child. You you did it a lot. I imagined being dead because I was afraid of it. Um, yeah. And so I. It, it's hard it. to imagine being dead. Right. It's very interesting. I thought just pause, and but it really is hard to imagine being dead because you're conscious of being dead, which means the materialist isn't. Carry on. It's very interesting what you're saying. So that's actually uh, my question, is the thing that I can't imagine not being there, um, is that 
the stillness, or is that part, maybe it's, it's probably too much already, but I guess it's, is that an approximation? Uh, kind of, but I, there was something in the back of my mind that I wanted to share tonight, and then you've just triggered what it was. I, and so I'm going to pull it out of the back, back drawer that I was planning to say anyway, and it may very well relate to your question. If it doesn't, you can come back. The practice is subtle. That's, certainly it is subtle. It's not like looking at a stone, a, a stone, a stick, or a flower. That's coarse compared to this. So, how, so here's the crucial point. Okay, and it may answer your question, Amir. And that is, how do you know when you're doing it correctly? And is it possible to do this practice incorrectly? The answer is yes, it is possible to do this practice incorrectly. And if you do it, that will not serve you well. Okay? So let's look at how do you do it incorrectly. Okay? I'll say, now of course, there are many, many ways. But simply, and right to the core, you're sitting there and your intention is to follow the instructions. And there you are sitting very still. I mean, there's many things you'd be doing, fidgeting and so forth. But imagine you're doing, giving a pretty good shot. And you're sitting there and your mind is just wandering and wandering and wandering. Then you're not doing the practice. I mean, it's not that you're doing it incorrectly. You're just not doing it. You're mind wandering. So that's not it. If you're sitting there and thoughts are coming up and you're just following after them, following after them, then that's fine, but you're actually not doing any practice at all. You're just sitting there with a wandering mind. Okay? So that's not that. So there's one extreme. Okay? Being carried away. It's called distraction. Now the other one, and I think now you can anticipate, you're sitting there very quietly. Your mind is very quiet. There are no thoughts coming up. Your mind is blank. And it's just blank. You're kind of emulating a potato. I don't know what it's like to be a potato. But you're just sitting there kind of vegging out. Kind of just spaced and not knowing anything. Just Here's the cartoon. <laughs> you know, not knowing anything. Just sitting there with a blank mind. Not knowing anything at all. Not that you're aware, or anything else. That's just dullness. That is stupor. Not to be cultivated. Because it will turn the noun into an adjective, and you will become stupid. It really will. You will become stupid. If you cultivate that, sustain that, you will become stupid. And, you know, I can imagine more enjoyable ways of becoming stupid than this one. What's that? You would if you didn't follow his instructions. But if you followed his instructions in the oscillation, that's not going to happen. That oscillation, that is number one, he said. Read it again. I, I'm not scolding at all. It's a great question. But read it again. He said, ask yourself, what is that consciousness that is concentrating? That's a question. If you've lost a question, you're sitting there in a stupor, then you're not, doing the, you're not following what he said. Because it's, it's, it's launched with a question. What is the very nature of that consciousness that is concentrating? Check it out, he said. Well, if you're checking it out, you're not sitting there in stupor. You're not sitting there in laxity, dullness, getting spaced out, and so forth. If you're checking out, those can't happen. And that, but that oscillation, so you're not checking it out and getting really high-strung, tight, wound up. Because you're checking it out, you're aroused of this intensification. But you know that each session is so short. Each session will just be the, the duration of your respiration, you know, or whatever you like. 
But that's what, that's what dispels that. It is that question, that probing into, that intensification of the awareness of being conscious. And then once you get it, then releasing. What came to mind right now is a passage from the Bhavanakrama by Kamalishila, where he's not teaching this practice, he's teaching another practice, but he makes a comparable point, teaching shamatha. And he says, find your object. Meditate like a visualized object, whatever it may be. I think he was teaching actually a visualized object. He says, find your object, get a lock on it. Just like right now. I'm, you can clearly see I'm attending to you. But now, if I, I don't need to attend to you like this. I'm going to burn out here real quickly, right? It doesn't need to be an, a relentless flow of maxing out on intensity. That's what I was just doing. Like I'm going to bore a hole through your head, you know, like laser beam. No, find the object. I've, okay, I found you. I'm attending to your face right now. It's clear. It's clear. So I'll try to do the cartoon. I found you, though. I'm not spacing out. I'm not getting confused. I found your face. So I found it, and now? That was a cartoon. I don't know what display, but I know what I felt. I was clear all the way, but it was, it was soft, relaxed. I wasn't holding on to you. I wasn't gripping. I wasn't concentrating with full intensity the whole time. I found you, and then I eased up a bit. And then I can continue that. I can continue that a long time because the body's relaxed, the breathing's relaxed, but I'm not lax or excited, neither laxity nor excitation. So he says, find your object and then soften a bit, not to the point of dullness, but so that you're not wiping yourself out with the intensity. And so that's what he's saying here, is that is you come and make a really close encounter, a real sharp, vivid ascertainment of awareness. And having gotten that, then... But what he's not suggesting is now space out. He's saying, now that you found it, now you can relax a bit. Because you found your home. You found, you found, you've come home. So now you can relax. But if you keep on relaxing, relaxing, then you probably will get diffuse. So, well, then arouse it again. Now, this will be finite. You don't do that indefinitely, all the way to shamatha. But you do that for as long as it's helpful. That arousal, you really get a good, sharp lock on the, the nature of the practice. Once you've found it, then like that, that oscillation. That just knocks out laxity, knocks out dullness, knocks out stupor, knocks out kind of going blank-minded. Can't happen. Not with that practice. That's why, you do, that's why he makes no reference to introspection. Okay? So I want to finish the thought. And we made, yeah, it's already 6.01, so it'll be no problem. Excellent, okay. But here's the point, and it's a, nice, it's a nice one. At least I find it really useful. We know the two extremes, right? They're not that difficult. Blah, 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 or spacing out, becoming stupor, right? If you're resting there, and also then focusing on an object. Like some people say, oh, I know how to do it. I just... I've taught this practice. People will say, oh, I've got it. Well, uh, what I did was I anchored my visual attention right on the floor, and then I could do it really well. Well, let's start from the beginning in. Not that. You're not anchoring your attention anywhere. I mean, I, un I understand why people want to do it, but then you're not doing the practice. You're doing just the opposite of what he said. He said, do not focus your attention on anything. Do not meditate on anything, and certainly don't drop your anchor in the visual field. You're doing it wrong, right? So not that. In other words, don't focus. If you're, 
If you're focusing on something, on something with a vector, you're doing it wrong. If you're being carried away, you're doing it wrong. If you're doping out or getting dull, losing clarity, you're not doing it correctly. And now, process of elimination. What's left over? You remember what I said before? You find the middle way by identifying the extremes, and when it's neither this extreme nor that extreme, what's left over is the middle way? I would say this. If, as you're practicing, you can see, you can recognize or know immediately you're not focusing on some object, check. You're not being carried away by some thought, image, sensory impression, check. You're maintaining a flow of cognizance, of clear knowing, without falling into dullness, loss of clarity, and so forth, check. What's left over is doing this practice correctly. And it entails doing virtually nothing. What it does entail is being aware. And then with this little addition of the oscillation, the oscillation, for a while. Does that answer your question? Okay, good. Excellent. Is space no. Space is not the object. Yeah, absolute. good question, and absolutely not. That's back to settling the mind in its natural state. That's what you wind up with as you come to the end of the, end, of the tr uh, end of the journey and all the contents have kind of vanished, dissolved into the space of the mind. Then you're attending to the space of the mind. This is not that. Because that also is a vector. It's attending to something. There's no vector. Sitting on your throne. I like the, I like the image of a, of a king or a queen sitting on the throne. This is where I belong. This is my home. I'm staying here. Oh, yeah. So that's our practice. We have now 24 hours. At 4.30 tomorrow afternoon, we're going to move on to the next phase. Not now. It'll have to be later, unless it's really urgent. Is it clear? Oh, yes, always, always, always. Yes, it can be done supine. Everything we're doing for the whole retreat can always be supine. It is so important the body is comfortable. The question is, can this be done in the supine position? In fact, then I'll bring, I've already sent you, and I will share with other people, some quotes to show you this is not flaking out or some kind of a soft, kind of ushy-gushy modification for Western flakes. It's not that. It's not that. And I will show sources to show that this is not just some, you know, California watered-down version for the people who are not macho enough to sit upright. I have to defend my masculinity here. <laughs> so enjoy the next 24 hours and make it full. Full of Dharma. Let your mind become Dharma.